Welcome to today's webinar. Uh, my name is Sonia Livingstone and I'm a professor um, in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE. And I lead the theories work package of a Horizon 2020 project called CORE, Children Online Research and Evidence, which is hosting uh, today's webinar uh, together with the LSE. I also lead a Global Kids Online project with UNICEF and the Digital Futures Commission with the Five Rights Foundation, among other projects. And they're all somehow concerned with the digital. And that's uh, today's topic. Uh, this webinar is being recorded and live streamed, and it's going to be published on the CORE website uh, in due course. Um, that's core-evidence.eu as part of our theory toolkit. So please feel free to tweet or post on social media. And uh, as we talk, uh, you're very welcome to put your questions in the Q&A and we will come to you soon. So why today's topic? Well, technologies are spreading into all aspects of our lives via smart devices, internet of things, augmented reality, data profiling, much more. Children's lives have become digital by default. We could say with digital technologies, the taken for granted way of playing, seeing family, doing schoolwork, hanging out with friends, especially in a post-COVID world. But where does the digital begin and end? And what does it include? Is it really the case that we can no longer distinguish between offline and online? Should we be talking of digital technologies or the digital environment or the digital era or the digital world or maybe just the digital? Um, I was thinking about this puzzle as I uh, recently worked with the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child in drafting a general comment on what we eventually came to call the digital environment. And after many efforts at definition and trying to kind of future proof what we said it would be to last at least maybe the next five years. We defined it in this way. The digital environment is constantly evolving and expanding, encompassing information and communication technologies, including digital networks, content, service and applications, connected devices and environments, virtual and augmented reality, artificial intelligence, robotics, automated systems, algorithms and data analytics, biometrics and implant technology. It's not terrible, but it's a list prefaced by a caution that the items on the list keep changing. It's not as simple as digital means noughts and ones, nor as all-encompassing as the view that technology includes every technique by which humans are governed or by which power is mediated. But it's also, nor is it as narrow as what we often see in the media headlines, which is technology or digital means social media platforms because it tries to include the many crucial digital technologies that are not user-facing, but are now arguably part of societal infrastructure. Still, I do sense a kind of unease in how the digital is discussed and a kind of reluctance to define it that can be sensible because it's always changing, but can seem obfuscating to the wider public. So we picked the digital as one of the keywords key words to be interrogated in these webinars because it is central to the work of many of us and because we might define it differently depending perhaps on our disciplinary training or research purpose or theoretical preferences and we wanted to discover how everyone is thinking about it and where there might be consensus, where there might be debate. 
So let's discover how our speakers can illuminate our thinking. I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they will uh, very soon speak. Taina Buka is an associate professor in screen cultures at the Department of Media and Communication in the University of Oslo. She studies how users experience and make sense of algorithmic power and politics. And her first book, If Then, Algorithmic Power and Politics, details the ontological politics at stake in the algorithmic media landscape. And her recent book, Facebook, her recent book, Facebook, provides an invitation to rethink Facebook. Christine Hein is a professor of sociology in the Department of Sociology at the University of Surrey. Her main interest is in the development of ethnography in technical settings and in virtual methods or the use of the internet in social research. And in particular, she's known for developing mobile and connective approaches to ethnography that, ethnography that combine online and offline social contexts. Jean-Christophe Pl Jean Planton is Associate Professor in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE. Uh, his first book uh, was called Participatory Mapping, New Data, New Cartography, and detailed the use of web-based mapping platforms by non-experts to participate in socio-technical debates. More recently, his research has investigated the increasingly infrastructural role that digital platforms play in society. Bika Zaman is an associate professor in human-computer interaction and research group leader of the Meaningful Interactions Lab at the Institute for Media Studies um, in uh, Caillou Leuven, University, Belgium. Her work focuses on children and digital media and design, media convergence in a digital society, progressive research and dissemination methods, and actually she and I work together on digital skills and children's rights in the Y Skills Project. So we've asked our speakers each to take five or so minutes to set out how they conceptualize the digital environment. Uh, please don't expect findings because I've asked the speakers to highlight the kind of disciplines, the theories, the concepts that they draw upon. I'd also note, um, perhaps because the speakers themselves raised it with me, that for the most part, they don't describe themselves as experts on children's digital experiences necessarily. But I think it's important that researchers concerned with children draw on theory broadly. And certainly we shouldn't reinvent the wheel or develop a kind of parallel world of theory just for those who think about children. So we want fields of inquiry to be porous and open to learning from each other in all directions. So after the speakers have um, each kind of set out their position, we'll have a more conversational round of input from each of them to identify their debates, undefined issues, perhaps points of disagreement or um, deliberation. And overall, I, I, I see our purpose is trying to kind of clarify our tools to think with and be uh, clear about the terms we use, the assumptions and priorities that underpin our different perspectives. And with that in mind, we very much welcome your um, questions and suggestions in the uh, Q&A box of this Zoom webinar. Our discussant is Maria Stoilova, um, postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Media and Communications at LSE. Her area of expertise is the intersection of child rights and digital technology with a particular focus on the opportunities and risks of digital media use in the everyday lives of children and young people. 
data and privacy online, digital skills and pathways to harm and well-being. And Maria is going to be keeping an eye on your questions and will bring them to the attention of the speakers in due course. But first, um, over to Tyna and uh, we welcome your uh, thoughts and comments. Thank you. So thank you so much. Um, hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for the uh, invitation and to the organizers for this event. Um, I always think it's very exciting to be able to sort of reflect critically on, on key terms, uh, some of the terms that we use every day and in our research without necessarily thinking too much about them. So I really like this sort of challenge um, so coming from a background of cultural sociology and uh, media studies, my options for thinking about um, and conceptualizing the digital are actually quite vast. Um, and I think the most common way of um, thinking about digital is not to think about it at all. Um, so I think we tend to take the idea, um, the concept of the digital as more or less for granted. Um, and in this mode, the digital is often equated to consumer technology. Um, so specific instances of digital media, whether we think of them as Facebook, Google, Snapchat, the internet, um, an app, the smartphone, so here the digital is just a shorthand for digital devices. Um, another option that we have is to sort of differentiate and contrast it to uh, what it's supposed to be its opposites or counterparts. So online from offline as um, Sonia already mentioned and also the digital from the analog. Um, so this, this last differentiation is quite common with sort of more humanities-based um, media studies. So thinking about um, the analog then um, in opposition to the digital, um, many theorists have said something about that, um, including sound studies uh, scholar Jonathan Stern, who suggests that the term analog is basically used to denote everything not digital. So if digital means computers and their processing of discrete binary information, analog operates using continuous variations, but tends to mean little more than not digital. Um, so while I'm personally not so interested in these technical specifications, I think that what's interesting about this contrast or this differentiation um, is really how they serve as discurs discursive markers or imagine cultural conditions rather than opposites. So if there is an opposition or a differentiation, I think it's very much a made one, a constructed one um, that serves different kinds of purposes um, so these things, digital, analog, I think they, more than anything, they're used to connote different things and provide sort of uh, tools to speak about technology. So if analog often connotes things like nostalgia, old-fashionedness, history, safety, 
nature, authenticity. The digital is used to connote futurity, innovation, cultural transformation, the new, risk and opportunities. So I think there's nothing in the digital that is specifically new um, or innovative as it were. So the newness and the risk and the opportunities that we um, subscribe to, uh, to the digital um, is more sort of a made thing um, and part of our hopes and our imaginaries. So whether this means that thinking about the digital um, is, uh, doesn't make sense anymore, whether it's just a construct, um, I don't think that it's just a discursive construct, um, though I think it's part of the conversation. So one valuable um, uh, avenue for thinking about the digital uh, and the digital environment specifically, um, since this was the challenge, is to turn to the second term, the environment. Um, more specifically, I think that the idea of relational affordances is quite useful. Um, and this term was originally conceived by um, the ecological psychologist James Gibson in the late 1970s to designate all kinds of action possibilities that are latent in the physical environment. Also allows me to include a cat on one of those slides, which is almost what you're supposed to do if you're talking about the digital in internet research. And so for Gibson, the affordances of the environment are what it offers the animal, um, what it provides or furnishes, either for good or ill. So this is the definition. And I think that the key insight of this is that we do not necessarily perceive the environment as such, but rather through its affordances, um, the possibilities of action it provides. So fire, for example, affords warmth, affords um, light and cooking, but at the same time, it also poses a threat, the risk of getting burned and so on. Um, importantly, these um, affordances for Gibson, and there are other uh, theories of affordances also, uh, need to be understood relationally, so relative to the interlocutor, so relative to the animal, relative to the, to the person that interacts uh, with the environment. And so I think that for me, um, this is a useful way, way of thinking about digital environment as well. Um, so uh, in a Gibsonian sense, technical features and functionalities um, are almost akin to rock and stones in the physical um, environment. So ways of furnishing the digital environment, as Gibson would call it. So that afford different kinds of um, actions, such as clicking or liking or whatever else you want to do on the web, which in turn also are afforded by the networked infrastructure um, characterized by what um, Dana Boyd has been describing as sort of networked uh, affordances, persistence, replicability, scalability, and searchability, for instance. And so in this sense, relational affordances, I think offers a useful analytical tool to approach platforms as specific digital environments 
that offer action possibilities um, to various users. Uh, so not a universal user, but relative to the person sort of um, inhabiting that space. So including children, right? Um, Also, some things in closing to be said about the differences between physical and digital environments. And for me, um, thinking about these terms, um, I think going to architecture and space, so human geography, is quite a useful thing. So if we think of the built environment of buildings and roads, that govern ways of um, moving about them, right? Um, then the materiality of those environments are really important. Um, so if we think of brick walls and concrete floors as ways that delineate boundaries uh, and constrain mobility in different ways, I think the architecture of digital spaces are environmentalizing too, right? So. If we think about data, algorithms, and networked infrastructure, um, sort of almost akin to brick, mortar, and concrete, um, or any other kind of material used to build that environment, we can start to see how they help to produce space in specific ways, and how they shape the world that coheres around them. Um, so while you know, bricks and, and uh, concrete do not really change as the result of a person moving through the room. Um, the algorithmic walls of platforms are much stickier and much more responsive, much more expansive, right? They attend to the person moving through the digital space, they take note, and they ultimately contribute to changing that very space in a very performative manner. So I think, uh, as for the theories to think about the digital, I think going to number of different places that are not necessarily about digital technologies per se, but to think about sort of how they, how they shape perception, how they orient people, how they built sort of the environment um, is, is a very useful thing to do. Um, and sort of think about the digital beyond consumer technologies. And here are some references. Brilliant. Thank you very much, uh, Taina. I do wish we could all um, clap, but uh, we, we can't clap in these situations. But um, uh, this was a fantastically um, helpful way to uh, kick off the discussion and um, very much appreciated. Um, I, I particularly liked your um, early point that by dubbing the digital new we somehow redescribe the whole of human history as analog as if it were all one thing and um, had a particular shared some particular characteristics that nobody ever noticed before but now we see are not digital um, and this is I know something I, I and others struggle with um, so let me turn now to uh, Christine Hein and invite her to, um, I think, share her screen. And um, uh, let's see how you how digital looks from your perspective. Okay, thank you. Uh, oh, I've, I've skipped a slide. Let me just go back. Ah, you might as well get the benefit of my beautiful, beautiful corporate starting slide. 
Um, yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you very much for the uh, opportunity to uh, interact with the others on this panel. I think it's a great set of topics to explore. And I think, you know, there's a lot there in what Tyne is saying that I'm hugely sympathetic to. It's, um, you know, great to see the resonances there. Um, but I think I'm coming from uh, 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 adding on another layer to that, if you like, um, as an ethnographer. So my approach to the digital is as someone who studies uh, culture, studies how people make sense of their world. Um, and that's the sense in which I approach the digital is what on earth do people think they're up to when they're doing this stuff? Um, and uh, I started out doing this you know, back in the 1990s when we had to work really hard to convince people that there was something significant going on in online space at all, that we had to take it seriously. Um, but I think the, the, the target, the thing that we're trying to uh, bring to light has moved over time. And so for me now, what I've come to is this uh, idea about the Internet, the digital that I um, capture as the the E-cubed the e Internet. So the three different E's. So I think now we can think of digital technologies as being very much always understood through their embedding. They're embedded within specific contexts. They're embedded within our institutions, our identities, our ways of being accountable and responsible to one another. So it's, it's difficult to separate them out from those very, those contexts that they are utterly embedded within. I think digital technologies, what we see is that they have become very much embodied so we treat our digital technologies our digital communications as ways of being in the world um you know uh we don't i am going online as if online is some kind of place out there we just kind of go about our business and and you know as embodied communicators social beings and using digital technologies has become part of that and then thirdly is the, the everydayness of these technologies and that they have so much soaked into the just the kind of the texture of our everyday experience, um, which can make it very difficult if you're a researcher trying to understand what sense people are making of them because they don't necessarily naturally want to talk about it. They just do stuff with them. But then in in kind of very specific ways we topicalize them where we also make them non everyday so we went when we want to have a particular kind of risk risk discussion about how terrible it is and we want to blame something then we often topicalize the digital but that kind of pulls it out of the everyday so if you take the all of those um together what we end up with is a very complex very unpredictable kind of um, social landscapes that we're moving through that span face-to-face -face and digital technologies, but where people are also continually repurposing digital technologies in unexpected ways. We can't assume that we know what people will or should do. So we're creating this very kind of complex emergent kind of social space or social landscapes. Um, and I think, um, although I don't 
I don't do much on children. I guess what I'm always trying to do is to see the digital landscape through people's eyes. How does that landscape roll out? You know, where are the hills and the valleys? Where are the gates locked and where are the open pathways? Um, so I think this is really interesting challenge of how do we see digital landscapes through children's eyes? Because as researchers, we use research methods to understand these landscapes, but um, some spaces are much more accessible to our methods than others. Um, and so how easy it is to study something doesn't map onto how significant it is to users. You know, uh, the, the WhatsApp group is an example. You know, you can't just go crashing into somebody's WhatsApp group, but that might be where a whole load of significant stuff is happening. And also these digital spaces vary in how far they're accessible to both children and adults, you know, so we have very different landscapes available to us to move through. So then just thinking briefly, um, as a researcher, um, I think it's really important to remind ourselves we don't have to study all of this at once. You don't have to somehow magically capture the whole thing. Um, that actually sometimes we will be wanting to do blended, multimodal, very kind of ambitiously complex studies, but sometimes still we do need to study those individual spaces in their depth and detail for what they are. I think there's a lot we need to do in terms of being reflexive. Sometimes that is even being autoethnographic to explore thinking about the decisions we're making, reflecting on the constraints we're facing and whether they're the same as other people are facing. I think there's an awful lot of um, opportunity to use um, responsive and connective and mobile methods um, when we are trying to research. What is this? We just don't know what sense one person is making of what they've, what, what, I might come across in Instagram, how I'm sharing that with somebody in another space and talking about that with somebody else in another space. Uh, that If we're going to try and get to grips with that, we need really quite responsive, quite mobile methods. Um, and I can, I can say a lot of this as someone who researches uh, generally what adults do, but when we're talking about recruiting children, we're for research to hear their voices. We're also going to be talking about how we're going to get them to be reflexive, autoethnographic, how we're going to avoid um, effectively stalking them across different spaces. So there's a lot to be said about, I think, how far these methods translate across from uh, research on adults into research on children. But I think, you know, fundamentally this focus on lived social experience and what spaces people make significant within their own lives is, is very uh, important. But put that emphasis on lived social experience alongside another set of issues, which are, I think, very also provocative now is that we can also do various kinds of visualization and large scale data analysis. You know, we have got some methods that allow us to hover above these spaces. And I think those are also interestingly provocative um, for doing this kind of research. So, yeah. So to summarize, I think the challenge is how to see digital landscapes through people's eyes. And um, it's it's it, it's a big challenge, but a worthwhile one. Okay. Lovely. Thank you very much, Christine. Um, uh, 
I, I absolutely, I mean, some of us, and we'll come, when we come to uh, Beaker's intervention, this is something she absolutely spends a lot of time doing to think how to, as, as do I and colleagues, how to see the world through the eyes of the child. It's hard already to do that, to see it through, see the digital world through the eyes is a kind of double challenge. Um, I would just say I'm struck so far at the use of spatial metaphors um, uh, in both um, Tyna and uh, Christine, your your remarks and the kind of the sense of landscapes, of spaces, of um, uh, urban uh, geographies. Um, and um, so I know that uh, Jean-Christophe writes about um, uh, infrastructures, and I don't know if that's a spatial metaphor or perhaps it's another metaphor. So, um, uh, Jean-Christophe Clanton, please um, take it away and let's see if you introduce some new metaphors or deepen the current one. Thank you. We're about to see. Yeah. Let me share my screen. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you all for attending. Thanks for having me. It's really a fantastic uh, discussion so far, and I look forward to um, the discussion. The, the um, the concept I'd like to add to our toolbox, the toolbox we're building together to think about the digital is, as Sonia, you mentioned, the concept of infrastructure. Um, in two ways specifically, um, infrastructure is an interesting concept to lead us to understand more about really the brick and mortar aspect of our digital networks, yes, but also a concept that emphasizes the relational nature of um, technology. Let me illustrate that um, with the example of uh, broadband consumption and disruption around um, the pandemic. As I'm sure you're all aware, the COVID-19 pandemic and related stay-at-home orders uh, have generated a massive increase in broadband consumption, as reported by the BBC. As we can see here, on the penultimate day of 2020, internet use in the UK doubled that year with open reach total customers base using 50,000 petabytes of data as opposed to 22,000 the year um, after. So in my work, I study the various actors that are involved in building and maintaining our digital infrastructure. For example, I study network engineers working for large tech company, companies or activists um, publishing radiation data after major industrial crisis or data processors cleaning data set. In a, in a data archive. But generally a statement that I encounter very often in my field, which is the social study of infrastructure, is that infrastructure breakdown can be seen as, yes, an outage, okay, but also as a productive moment to generate knowledge. Susan Lee Starr, as she put it in her note on how to study infrastructure ethnographically, uh, infrastructure become invisible when they break. At home, for example, we become aware of our electrical or a plumbing system when something goes awfully wrong and we have to call an engineer who opens up the cupboard and fuse box that we usually never venture uh, into. The, so this statement is often criticized, uh, especially in anthropology, for being um, mostly true in the global north, whereas infrastructure breakdown is in some, time, is some global south countries the everyday normal and not the exceptional. But I will contend this is still a productive approach. And if we apply these heuristics, this perspective, uh, we can similarly see here how the pandemic and uh, related stay-at-home orders can be, yes, severe moment of disruptions of our everyday life, obviously, but also can bring light on the communication infrastructure 
that we depend on every day. I have selected three properties of our broadband provision that have gained mainstream attention due um, to the pandemic. First, our broadband is not infinite. In early March 2020, internet service providers and um, regulatory bodies such as the European Union Commissioner asked the providers of popular streaming services such as Netflix, Amazon Prime or YouTube to reduce the quality of their videos in order to lower the overall bandwidth consumption and to allow other services to run. Second, the way we organized our very own home setup and how we use our devices matter. For example, who knew that using a microwave could reduce the quality of our signal at home? Ofcom published a uh, checklist as part of its Stay Connected initiative in March 2020 to give a series of similar advices, uh, pieces of advice to increase signal reception, ranging from the appropriate location for our home router, making calls at less common times, for example, instead of on the hour or half hour, or using an internet cable instead of Wi-Fi on. Third point, our internet depends on technicians, support workers, engineers that are usually invisible and who constantly work to make the network, to make sure the network is up and running. Data center workers who maintain the server that store our data and content um, were classified as key workers by the UK and the US state of California as early as March 2020. Also, the increasing need for support for broadband users revealed the International Division of Labor, but also the sheer dependence of UK-based service provider outsourcing their support teams to India and uh, the Philippines. When these two countries started implementing their own lockdowns in 2020, then their overseas support teams became less available, leading Virgin to try to hire staff back um, in the UK. So where do we go from here? How do we turn the knowledge that we gain during this pandemic into something maybe more sustainable, something more systematic? Um, Jonathan Gray from King's College and his co-authors proposed in 2018 the term data infrastructure literacy to think about the skills needed in our digital society, but going beyond simply working with data sets, but also to get a deeper understanding of what they call, I quote, the wider socio-technical infrastructures through which data is created, stored, and analyzed. I would complement this goal by adding a much more literal understanding of the term infrastructure first, by transmitting knowledge on maybe the very basics of a network, um, what is a router? What and where is a service provider? Um, what is a data center? What is its function? Now, already fantastic books uh, on these topics, such as Tubes by Andrew Bloom or Networks of New York by Ingrid um, Burrington. But second, and going beyond the technology only, we could ask things such as, what are the invisible forms of labor that we depend on to run our internet? Who are the technicians, the engineers, the call center staff, where are they in the world, but also under what status do they work? And more fundamentally, what do we learn by making them more visible? Gaining knowledge or at least awareness of this aspect of a network could hopefully bring us a more robust understanding of how our current internet infrastructure work, okay, but also lead us to have a better engagement with debates on future infrastructure.
the conspiracy theories linking COVID-19 to uh, 5G led to actual vandalism of cell towers and attacks of many engineers, direct attack, physical attacks to engineers across Europe. Um, ironically enough, these attacks targeted equipment that had nothing to do whatsoever with 5G um, equipment. As my colleague Robin Mansell and I showed in a recent report, the UK press coverage specifically of 5G emphasizes the groundbreaking applications of 5G that 5G will support, but doesn't ask the hard questions in terms of user privacy or the extension of data, a personal data collection. So providing more knowledge on current and future broadband and mobile networks could be a step toward bringing to the fore the real debates about 5G beyond fallacies and um, conspiracies. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, uh, Jean-Christophe. Uh, you remind me, in fact, that in the Global Kids Online project, when we ask children um, how they think about the internet or all things digital, uh, the number one thing they talk about is access and connectivity and is the, is the infrastructure kind of reaching them or what do they have to do to gain access to it and what workarounds can they kind of put in place to, to get there? So um, uh, I know that that's um, a, a, actually an issue in um, all parts of the world, not um, only in the global south, where, which is, after all, the majority of the world. Um, but it's, it's um, yeah, one of those things that one becomes very salient when you talk to children, um, which perhaps in the West we take a little for granted until you kind of peel behind um, what uh, Tyner called the consumer technology to see uh, the infrastructure it, it rests upon. Um, I'm going to turn now to Bika and uh, Bika invite your thoughts on uh, what you mean by the digital and uh, over to you, thank you. Right, thank you. What I prepared for you is actually, I would like to introduce you to two theoretical and analytical frameworks that greatly influence and guide my research. It concerns two frameworks. On the one hand, uh, the mediation framework of Leah Liefer, and on the other hand, the conceptual framework of collaborative media as uh, developed by Jonas Logan and Bo Reimer. I will show you the references in a minute. But before I show you uh, two visualizations that kind of summarize these theoretical frameworks, I would like to explain why I chose these, because there are three reasons for that. And the first one is because these analytical frameworks uh, nicely bridge disciplines in which I've been trained. On the one hand, that is the discipline of media and communication research. And on the other hand, the discipline of human-computer interaction research and more specifically child-computer interaction research. So uh, that also explains who I am. So I'm because I'm an associate professor at the Keerleuven in Belgium. And as uh, Sonia nicely said uh, during the introduction, I'm indeed affiliated with the Institute's uh, for media studies. There comes the media and communication side. Um, but I'm also leading uh, the Meaningful Interactions Lab, which is more um, uh, diverse and working in the realm of human-computer interaction research. And um, since last week, I'm also leading a new interdisciplinary digital society institute. So it's getting more interdisciplinary all the time. 
Um, um, uh, that is also the second reason, actually, why I chose these frameworks, because the authors involved advocate breaking through disciplinary silos. And that's what I enjoy from having listened to the previous speakers. They all bring their disciplinary background to look at a similar phenomenon. And that is so enriching. And I recognize myself in it. And it's interesting to see how some of the building blocks are the same, but sometimes we use different charcoal. So, um, that is already a spoiler alert. So to some extent, I might use uh, similar terms, but rely on different references, for instance, or uh, might have a um, slightly different um, uh, operationalization or conceptualization. So these ideas of breaking through disciplinary silos was the second reason why I chose these two frameworks. And the third one is uh, because these frameworks built on um, both on similar premises and observations about how the research field of media and communication sciences is evolving, partly due to the changing media landscape and technological evolutions, and how this is also challenging our research. Um, and both frameworks, you will see, they also acknowledge in their analytical lens the role of technological artifacts and design aspects, and that is something I also focus in. Uh, on in my research. So let me now um, share my screen and um, uh, show you the two uh, frameworks. Um, all right. I think you can see them now. Is that correct? All right, excellent. So um, these are the two frameworks together with the reference. And I will now start, I kind of introduced these a little bit. I will now start uh, talking about um, the left one, um, the mediation framework by uh, Leah Livra. And um, I will first explain what kind of, uh, what the rationale was. Um, uh, she observed that our discipline and then our, I'm talking mainly like media and communication sciences uh, has traditionally paid most attention to media contents, uh, but also the institutional political system uh, surrounding media, but not so much about the medium itself as an artifact, so as a system and uh, hence the design and development aspects. So uh, what you will see immediately in this visualization is that um, the artifacts and the technologies has also a key role, not more or less than the others. Uh, they get similar weight. The font is a little bit small, but if you look in the outer circle, you will see three main components. One is um, uh, referring to the artifacts. The other uh, is uh, on top of practices. And then thirdly, we have the social arrangements. Um, but these are not to be seen as just like... Um, yeah, uh, static building blocks. Um, on the contrary, mediation stands for a process. That is, these three components are, first of all, mutually determining. So they uh, influence each other uh, in an ongoing articulated way. And this way, they also bring processes of change. And I think that's super interesting because these processes of change um, are to be situated at each of these levels. Uh, for instance, when we talk about the artifacts, the technologies, we see technologies are evolving. There are processes of reconfiguration. And often this comes in a response, for instance, to practices, the way we use it. Like think of the Twitter hashtag, we kind of you know, practices, we actually introduced it and this that was then um, taken up at the artifact level as well. But in a similar way, we see that social 
arrangements or, for instance, legal aspects uh, like uh, privacy uh, uh, regulation or self-regulation is also influencing the way artifacts are being created. And for instance, what is the default privacy by design option, for instance. So these are all in relation to each other and they, they uh, implement change. Sometimes it's uh, very obvious or to a great extent, sometimes a little bit um, less so for me, uh, when I also look at like the kind of research that I'm doing, um, I find this um, in an interesting framework for three reasons. First of all, the rather encompassing uh, understanding of this complex relationship between the uh, technology, the context, the users, the way we um, uh, embedded it in our uh, everyday life and give it meaning. Um, and um, this also might um, help us to uh, move beyond existing silos, uh, for instance. I also like that um, Aliva put the attention also and an awareness of the words that we're using. So it was very deliberate that this framework is not relying on, on words like audiences or text because it might come with certain connotations like which we had in the past. We can have a discussion whether these are the terms to use always and, and that's the one to mature but still I think pointing the attention to the discourses and the way we use certain words like for instance users um, is, is interesting because it might come with certain connotations. And the third reason why I think it's really interesting is because of this relational ontology uh, and the agentic um, notion of each of these components, including the artifacts, so including the non-human aspects and how they mutually reinforce uh, each other in interaction or even interaction, which might open up, um, uh, for instance, uh, uh, this notion of uh, affordances, uh, which China in the beginning said, uh, but also uh, which might um, uh, give entry to more posthuman theories uh, where this is uh, at the center of, of research. And for instance, in the field of human-computer interaction, this we see that there is an increased interest in these entanglement theories, as it is called. Um, I would like to focus now on the second one. And again, there are some similar premises uh, that uh, Lever was also echoing. Uh, first of all, an observation of how the media landscape has changed and how our analytical uh, tools uh, should respond to that. And uh, here again, uh, there was the authors observed that in traditional media and communication research, still there was lots of focus on text and media audiences, but not so much on the media infrastructure. And here, here comes the infrastructure again. Um, what the authors uh, say that uh, they talk about collaborative media um, and that it consists of both infrastructure and text. Um, and um, what is interesting here is that uh, one of the points and that you, is something you can infer from the visualization is that they want to move beyond this traditional notion of like there is a fixed linear sequence of one moment of production and one moment of consumption. And that's a big argument that they are trying to build here because there are different iterations of design, production, consumption that uh, run in parallel, that there are uh, iterations, feedback loops. So um, this is not only at the practices level, but also in terms of role, it's no longer the only the professional media producer and like the amateur media consumer. This is uh, changing. 
And um, what you see here in the errors is that the authors distinguish three kinds of practices. That is the design practices, the production and the consumption practices. But in the small fonts next to that, you see that actually, uh, for instance, when we look at design in the uh, left corner, that in the design, there are also production and consumption practices happening. For instance, uh, let me focus on design and the consumption that is happening in between. There is that practice of doing, uh, for instance, usability tests or user tests uh, based on uh, early prototypes, low fidelity prototypes, and that is already inviting the end user, so to say, uh, as a consumer, but in the design time. And this is the same for production practices, also for consumption practices. And I like to focus a little bit on the consumption practices as well and the design practices that happen. So the what is called here design in consumption practices. Um, because we, we all know um, that what we do online leaves traces um, and this can be captured in behavioral metrics. Um, but by through this data that we give sometimes consciously, um, more often unconsciously, we kind of through consumption, we do shape uh, the design as such. Uh, so um, when I watch a video or a, a certain news article um, and many other people do it, it uh, influences the selection of, for instance, a list of most watched video clips or most read news articles. Um, and this, these processes of um, design, production, etc., and how this is, is kind of getting more uh, fluid and also um, in iterative processes, like even after a product is being launched on the market, it's continuously redesigned, was also something we saw in Liva's um, a framework because uh, she talked about like how people can creatively reconfigure technological artifacts, uh, but how also how it might shape like remediating content and forms of interaction practices. Um, what this this aspect that I said that this is not only something to be considered like at the moment that technologies are being developed. It's also once it's launched on the market, we we as as people we we uh, continuously um, engage with these, we appropriate them, we co-design them, and. Um, this is also, in, for instance, in media uh, studies um, and as in, in the terms of children, for instance, it's, it's referred to as like children's rights, rights by design. So the fact that uh, children can also take up agency to, to make sense of it, to uh, embed it in their everyday lives and, and, and co-design it in, in a way. Um, and um, yeah, I think also this notion of infrastructuring as really as, an, as a verb is something that we see in, in, in fields of participatory design is being taken up. And uh, here they, they want to move uh, beyond a purely technological focus. I see more as like the infrastructuring of socio-technical structures, for instance, authors like Le Dantec, Di Salvo, uh, in uh, Fison, they they talk about infrastructure in more like community based participatory design that's um, creating and configuring not only the technical aspects. For instance, you might create an online community platform, but also the social aspect. Like how can we create the infrastructure so that's uh, linked to local neighborhoods cooperatives, for instance but also spatial infrastructure. So like how is it linked to a particular neighborhood center uh, in a way of 
not just launching a technology and then <laughs> the hands off, but really looking um, for a prolonged future time, like how can we build some long-term commitment uh, through building capacities and communities. Mika, I think I'm going to um, uh, draw us to a close there, if I may, um, just sure. because um, I'm keen to kind of um, hear also from uh, contributions from the floor. And um, uh, just to remind everyone who's uh, listening, um, you're about to get your moment to um, uh, ask questions. I can see that we already have some questions coming on the Q&A and um, everyone should um, uh, please feel very welcome to um, add add more. Um, I already feel like there's, there's a lot of concepts um, in play. Um, uh, Bika, towards the end, uh, mentioned one I thought would have come up earlier, which was around the agency of users. And I know that's something you've all um, thought of. I wonder if I can um, maybe um, ask uh, Christine if, if, if you have a sense. I mean, you, you, you see things through the eyes of the um, the user, does that mean that agency is your kind of a core um, theme or concept with which you approach the digital environment or it'd be great to have a sense, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so I suppose that agency is one way to capture that. Um, I guess I, I, I tend to think of, think of it more about sort of, um, uh, not as an absolute agency or not agency, but much more about varied textures of our kind of feelings of freedom and constraint, you know, so some directions are kind of easier to move in. We're more channeled by that direction than we are in other directions. So freedom and constraint and that, that kind of variation in what we feel we can do, um, I think is, is is very interesting um and i think one of the things that's been in my mind that maybe we also haven't talked about much here is the way that the digital space is regulated and governed and constrained and also owned in lots of different ways so um you know so there's an extent to which you know agency it comes up against um what we're technically not allowed to do, can't do, but also what we're told not to do. And we spend so much of our time, you know, telling people not to do certain things in digital space. Um, so I think agency is a really interesting term, but it's also, you know, not to be taken as meaning we have it or we haven't. There's a very nuanced and complicated set of things going on. Mm -hmm. Right. And I can hear in a way that um, I, I absolutely kind of get that, um, desire to move beyond what has often been a, a, a too polarized kind of agency versus structure um, that's you know we've, we've applied in many ways um, um, and so I'm actually curious uh, Jean-Christophe I mean you kind of talk about infrastructure but I'm guessing that that is not um, to set up an opposition with the kind of the agency of users, or perhaps it is. No, absolutely. When we think traditionally of infrastructure, it's pretty much antithetical to to agency, right? We think of these big things that exist and that are over there. Like usually, we th we speak of users of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. and that's it. Um, however, and that's something that we we could see in other perspective uh, in other talks. What what we I feel what we're trying to do here is to really think the embeddedness of the digital uh, all across mm -hmm. our perspectives, right? We mm -hmm. We did not focus on 
the applications and what we can do with it, but more really how the digital is is going in the background and and uh, yeah, is constantly part of webs of meanings or interactions or things like that. So I found I found the very interesting bridges to move away from just like a pure technological or just agency based uh, mm-hmm. conception of the digital. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Um, I, I absolutely, yeah, I think there's a, there's a real desire to kind of overcome binaries and to find a, a new language, I think, not just for thinking about the digital environment, but actually more uh, generally. Um, Tyna, I think you um, you were the one that um, introduced uh, our thinking about affordances most kind of focally. And um, I'm going to give you my problem now, because um, to me, that's the concept that kind of allows us to overcome and to kind of think anew about the relationship between um, people and technologies, how we're going to theorize that. Um, but every time one uses the word outside the academy, it becomes quite um, complex. People, the the outside world seems not to love the concept of affordances and it's um, kind of relational rather than subject object um, conception. I just wonder if you found a way of kind of socializing that idea and, or maybe we're, I'm trying to make it carry too much weight here. Well, I mean, that's very interesting. I haven't actually encountered it uh, in, in those terms, but um, my, my students also find it surprisingly difficult. <laughs> uh, and then we insist on teaching about affordances and using it in all, all kinds of ways. So obviously there is a need for that type of language. Mm-hmm. And maybe there, you know, maybe maybe there's also something to be said about alternative ways of, theorizing what we use affordances to try to capture. Um, it's obviously a very, um, very useful term because uh, it sort of uh, spans across a lot of disciplines. Um, mm-hmm. And so many people have tried to theorize it in different manners. Mm-hmm. So, and we all sort of try to capture, um, as you say, the relationality uh, something you know talking about agency it's also very um sort of a, a gentle term right who who has the agency uh in a relational um situation um so but i'm not sure um yeah maybe there's just a lack of uh of useful agreed upon synonyms to capture that very logic um of agency in a relational sense. I'm not sure if any other sort of theoretical or academic term will do the trick if you talk to uh, to the outside world. They're sort of equally confusing and complex and unnecessarily theoretical sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, whether you talk about affordances or um, infraction or, you know, mm-hmm actor network theory doesn't make any sense to the outside world, <laughs> right? So I don't know. I hope we're not doomed to um, obfuscation. And um, <laughs> I think what does um, what does kind of translate well across kind of um, academia and and um, practice and, and other domains 
um, are the various kind of environmental and ecological metaphors. And maybe that is the way that we can kind of stitch together um, agency and affordances and infrastructures. Um, uh, quick question for um, Bika in that regard, and then I'm going to come to the audience. I think I was listening very carefully to what you said. I think you were the one that didn't deploy um, kind of geographical metaphors. Um, because you had different perspectives and I and so there wasn't that sense of the digital as a kind of a space or a place perhaps where people engage um, and I wonder if that's because you've already transcended an online offline binary or you just have a different theoretical preference or I caught you on a interesting day yeah for me talking about digital technology feels a little bit like how we used to say, like, we're doing research on new media. <laughs> it's so relative. It's like when we talk about um, media, it's inherently digital. So it doesn't matter to talk about it. Okay. And um, yeah, also when we think about like how, how it's blended, sometimes it's very often, actually, it's very hard to say here's starts the analog and, and, and the real or the, the physical or whatever. And here starts the digital. It's even like in our most intimate zones that these are a body um so and especially when when we keep on talking like digital technology we we we're not really using future proof language because what is the next one we have bio nanotechnologies etc and and in essence when we are doing research we we should find the fundamentals that are underlying there and um, I think that it might be interesting to to have a look more at the action poten potentialities, what it can do, what it can mean, and that there maybe we find a way to overcome that way of talking about. And this goes um, from various perspectives. Also, when the way technology is being built, very often we try to mirror what what exists, but we tend to potentially miss out many opportunities. Things of the ebooks, it's kind of a copy, even like how you switch pages, etc. But what about all these multisensory aspects um, that are also possible? And when we when we're too much staring at that binary, we're missing out various aspects, I, uh, I believe. Thank you. Um, I'm going to bring um, Maria Stoliver in at this point. I know she's here, but I can't, um, if you want to put on your camera, Maria. Uh, thank you. Welcome. And um, uh, so questions are building up um, in the in the Q&A. Do you want to kind of take us through and maybe put some of them to our, um, our speakers? Thank you, Sonia. And thank you to all the speakers. Uh, it was really fascinating to, to watch the, the discussion and we've been monitoring Facebook and Twitter uh, as well. And uh, the, the questions are also quite different. Uh, it's, it's difficult to structure them. So I'll try to go through as many as we uh, can. And th there's some fun ones, like what is the name of the cat, but also some <laughs> quite existential ones as is the digital even the right word? Why is it falling apart when we try to think about it? Is it because it's seen through our own personal um, experiences and so on? But uh, the first question that I want to actually pose to uh, to the speakers is uh, based uh, on the kind of audience that we have. 
uh, we, we've seen that people have really uh, sort of uh, global uh, reach. Uh, we have a really global audience. So people, from, you know, from Las Vegas to Egypt to India, uh, coming in with with questions. So I just wanted to use just this fact to uh, ask the speakers to address maybe uh, because we've we've heard about networks, we've heard about infrastructures, and how it's global uh, and it's everywhere. There's the same structure, which is um, I guess quite unique compared to other structures of our lives, but also um, access varies, uh, devices vary, and affordances vary in these different uh, places. So how does that affect the way that we understand the digital environment? And is there the one, the digital environment, or many digital environments? I oscillate in my own writing on this, I know. Uh, Jean-Christophe, please. Yeah, I obviously don't have the answer to such a massive question, but uh, I would like to build upon the fantastic point that Bieke did, which is just when when we keep focusing on um, contingent expression of a technology, then there is a problem of temporality. Like what if we ground our concepts in such contingent technology that our, the half-life of our concept is going to be pretty short, but also, so that's for the temporal aspect. The spatial aspect is also present. What we describe as technology reflect the standpoint of where we are in the world and in the social world as researchers. So the form of the technology that we study around us is probably valid for us, even though we present it perhaps as universal, like we like to do. Um, so yeah, we, we shut off a wide range of um, other expressions of these technology and therefore of the theoretical toolbox that's up to, that comes on top of it to, to a wide range of the world. It is just rephrasing the problem. It is by no means offering uh, uh, an answer. Apologies. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Taina, please. Yeah, so I, I, I think that um, this question also relates to the um, initial question. I think in the framing of the event, um, the idea or the question of where is the digital located? How do we understand sort of the start and finishing points of the digital. And so trying to sort of disentangle the idea of the digital, right? So where is the digital located? And I think this also responds to uh, Sonia's initial or introduction uh, and introductory statement, thinking about how the digital is about expansion and, and evolving, right? So trying to resist languages of staticness and and unit, sort of a unitary understanding of the digital. And I think that if we think about different uses, different localities, um, different practices and so forth, I think, you know, speaking of, of space and our spatial metaphors, we might also think about them sort of not as fixed geographies or fixed spatial, uh, in a fixed spatial sense, but more sort of topologically. Um, so I think the idea of thinking about it with, with ideas of, um, or notions of topology, social topology, how sort of the idea and even the materiality of the digital is sort of about instabilities and fluctuations and sort of thinking about that space more as sort of a relation in becoming rather than, than fixedness. And then sort of it becomes really important to actually um, 
to to be quite specific about the kinds of realities and relationalities that go into this topological space. So then, it, of course, it then matters which users, where are we locating it, um, what comes in contact with what to make, to temporarily stabilize this idea of the digital, right? And it will look differently, um, of course, I think, in different in different actual geographical locales. Um, so I think sort of bringing in another spatial metaphor with, with topology, I think is also quite useful to the discussion. Thank you. Um, I, even though we, we tell children not to pay attention to the likes uh, on social media, I'm going to actually go for, for the next question for the one that has a lot of likes actually <laughs> and support from other um, people from the audience. So uh, Susan Wolf um, recalls um, an incident um, actually in the 1980s when she said uh, she saw a, a mother uh, and a child roller skating uh, and the mother had a walkman and she missed seeing how her child fell and started crying. Uh, so I want to use this uh, episode that, that she witnessed um, to ask, because I think it does say something about the presence and absence uh, and our ways of, of being present. Uh, or maybe transcending ourselves to, to different spaces in a way that we uh, weren't able to do uh, this before. So I wanted to ask about your thoughts in relation to uh, does the digital environment create new ways of, of being of, of being present, of being absent? Christine. Yeah, it's a very, very, very ev evocative little vignette there. Um, and I think it's invested with so much in terms of how we value different kinds of attention. So it's not just about co-presence and attention, but there's a lot invested in there in terms of value. And it's a very morally charged kind of uh, way of thinking. And I think that's one thing to reflect on about you know, one of the ways we collapse the digital into a singularity is, is when we invest it with this kind of moral charge. And, and a lot of what is going on here is the way that we're valuing certain kinds of interaction above others, the, the way that the digital becomes a way of enacting certain kinds of caring relationship or not caring relationship, the way it becomes how we are kind of enacting our intergenerational identities, both with how we interact with each other, but also how we try and police each other's ways of interacting with each other, how and when and to what. So, so there's a lot to be said there, I think, and a lot to unpack about the way that we have morally invested certain kinds of interaction. And we've done a lot of that without clear models. So a lot of our anxiety often, I think, think dwells on this is not how my childhood was, or this is not how my parents dealt with this. And that, that kind of sense of being without clear models is interesting as part of this kind of moral anxiety that's going on. Yeah, I would like to build on, uh, on that by some, some examples that might speak to many people, especially in these days. Um, we've been together with a PhD researcher and, and uh, researchers in, in Austria. We've been doing research on intergenerational interactions over distance. And um, we started the research before the uh, pandemic and then it turned into the pandemic and everyone was like, 
trying to um, connect with like grandparents and grandchildren um, via technologies. And what we felt is that, that many of the technologies like like the Zoom we're using now is really like ended up on like an exchange of information, a Q&A, watching each other. But when we observed the children and also what, what the grandparents appreciated was some sometimes different notions of presence. It's just like the child knew like uh, the FaceTime or the Zoom is open, but the child was not looking at the grandparent, but just playing around and, and, and focused on, 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 on that space, space just in, 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 in a home setting, for instance, but just the awareness and the ambient presence of the grandparent was enough. But we also felt that over distance, they were missing things like the smell, like how, how the grandparents smell or this, the tactile experience. And I think that's, that's also something interesting and that we learn nowadays even more and more. So it was a kind of a vignette, you might say also that, uh, um, that it's when Christine was talking, I, I wanted to share as well because it builds nicely on what she said. And it raises the question of whether one can really be embodied, I think. I mean, I, are there limits to that kind? Of, I, I know that there's all kinds of um, digital smells and touch yet in the mm-hmm. you know, coming to our, to our home soon, but um, uh, maybe there are limits also to the embodiment that makes something of a, a distinction. Mm-hmm. And I think this also takes us to, to the next question, which is uh, one that was asked on Facebook uh, by somebody from Egypt. Uh, and it's around human behavior. I think he's asking um, how the different online experiences impact the way that we um, behave offline, uh, like attitudes, impulses, uh, that we're not very patient, uh, that our attention spans might be changing. So I guess the question uh, underlying is, does this change uh, human behavior, human interaction more generally, not only when we are uh, online or in the digital? <laughs> Who wants to it's have a bold one? It, it is, and there's, there is a huge, um, I mean, there's, uh, it, it, it may not be um, the kind of the, the speakers here kind of preferred way of thinking, because I think you have very much argued that um, the, the, the digital is kind of infrastructural, is embedded, is, is everywhere. But I think that, um, that logic of comparison, both before to now, and also when we're on the Zoom and when we turn it off and we're suddenly back somewhere else, um, I think that either there is a kind of a huge amount of research going on that really plays with those binaries and plays with those comparisons. And that does um, resonate, I think, with a lot of, um, I know the way that or, you know, the public thinks about the digital still. Um, so in a way, um, maybe you're um, variously arguing something which is perhaps you're in the vanguard or perhaps um, there are other perspectives yet. I wonder how you um, take your ideas and kind of address that sense that there is somehow still an offline world, um, a different space without the technology. And is it worth making a comparison there? Uh, John Christophe. I can try, but more specifically on the idea that there is a there is a, an impact on the digital world over our non-digital world in the f- sense of um, attention, capacity, and and mm-hmm. this type of very narrow focus. Um, what what I, I the way I try to 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 
to, to turn it, to shift these is by um, quoting an old saying, which is that there is no data overload, there is just filter failure. So if you look at the history of science, um, there is constant fear since uh, centuries ago of a sort of data overload that and museums will not be able to cope and scientists are just going to be uh, not be able to work anymore. Um, however, what you see is that it is rather the tools that are um, needed to process this data and to turn it into knowledge um, that constantly have to readjust. For us at an everyday basis, it is, I don't know, the type of device that we use or the type of, these type of things are constantly moving. So what can be seen as, oh my God, attention economy is gone, is more like a, a constant ongoing restructuring of practices in reaction to, um, to data flow, information flow that are changing. That's how we'll try to turn the same question into something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to also to address a, a different area, and we have a, a few questions in relation to this, uh, which is around consent and privacy. Uh, there were comments in relation to uh, how much we give up from um, our own agency when we get into an environment which um, I think it was uh, maybe China at the beginning who described this as a sticky environment, so you're not... Uh, able anymore to just walk through the environment without any consequences. It just sticks to you. Uh, so maybe just to, to hear your reflections of how does that affect um, our privacy? Yeah, so I mean, maybe this also ties to the to the previous question a little bit, because I think um, there's something to be said about um, a certain disconnect between theory. I mean, this is a theory seminar. So academic theories about about these sorts of things and how it's actually um, sensed and experienced by people, how people talk about it, how, you know, just by looking at what my students are interested in and how the media reports on these issues is very much sort of a binary thing. It's always been the case, right? So talking about technology as sort of either good or bad or harmful or... Um, um, full of opportunities. So very much sort of a, a, a binary thing. Um, and I think that these sort, this way of speaking about it, of course, impacts people and they care about it and how they go about their everyday lives is not sort of by carrying a book about sort of relationality with them uh, or like a theore theoretical um, masterpiece that explains this this is sort of lived experience. Um, and just by looking at things like screen time, which is, you know, I'm teaching in the screen cultures program. And, um, and I guess Sonia is, is, of course, the expert also in this. But the, these kinds of discourses um, and sort of normative assumptions about what is sort of good, way, good ways of living a life and policing sort of different ways of using media, they of course impact, maybe they have much stronger influence on, on practice on sort of thinking about offline and online than, than any sort of academic theory um, for, for people's actual lived experience. Um, and so, you know, we, we can also theorize about um, consent and privacy, and there's a lot to be said about sort of how research also 
shows that people on the one hand don't really report caring about it, but researchers care immensely about it. And they talked about it and published about it for you know decades. So this sort of this, this disconnect or this sort of how do we meaningfully marry our theories that we uh, spend so much time on with, with the actual lived experience of people and, and taking that seriously and not just say, you know, oh, you, you haven't really, you know, understood what screen time is about or, um, right? So thinking about the ambivalence uh, as sort of an opportunity for theorizing, uh, I, I think would be a very um, interesting thing to do, right? So so what can we productively make out of out of sort of, sort of the recurring themes, the recurring ways of speaking about it, mm-hmm. vice versa, theory and theoretization and how we teach our students to think about it. Um, I don't have any, any answers, but I find it very interesting. Um, also, I think uh, a few comments uh, were related to maybe I can call them a more negative uh, effects or experiences uh, around uh, the digital. So they were uh, questions around harm and risks and screen time uh, and exploitation, um, especially uh, exploitation of children online. Uh, so I just wanted to um, open up uh, the, the opportunity to talk maybe about um we heard a lot about how the digital is not new and how it's reshaping uh, what's already existing and the extent to which we are actually personally uh, reshaping and perceiving this environment. But uh, maybe we can um, open up the floor to think a little bit more about the possible negative effects of what, whatever these might be in, in your work and how that reflects uh, your views. And maybe picking up the idea of... Um, uh, ambivalence and um, I often think in, in my work that um, the digital primarily is uncertain and it's somehow intensifying it's somehow whatever we had before has now been made more intense and more um, brought together in more kind of unexpected and unpredictable ways um, and a lot of the sense of kind of both risk and opportunity is, is you know, they kind of come together in unexpected combinations, remediations perhaps in them, uh, Leah Livre's um, uh, terminology or reconfigurations, um, in which we're kind of endlessly locked. Um, but then we are, I think, saying there is something um, perhaps not new, but different, something changed, something more intense that is... Um, developing faster maybe than our social norms have kind of prepared us for. Maybe that's a a way to think about it. Christine, yeah. I think one of the interesting and often challenging things that does feel as though it's changed is the extent to which we can now see into the kind of the intimate detail of a much wider array of other people's lives. So there's that that the conditions of mutual visibility do change somewhat, I think, with the digital environment. And so that brings you the possibilities of kind of um, use strikes for climate and that kind of global sense of connection and movement and all of that at the same time as it gives you that, that kind of ability to judge your own self-image against so many other people. So there's that... uh, 
I call it self-calibration, that kind of ability to go, am I normal, am I doing okay, can now be possibly influenced by this this much, much wider array of different influences. And that's, as I say, it's kind of, it's kind of got good and bad to it. It's uh, uh, Jean-Christophe talking about the filter. I mean, you know, if we're not filtering that, then maybe we're in trouble. But there's also an interesting layer in which the way that people are able to now self-calibrate as parents in new new ways. I don't, I'm a huge fan of the, the UK site Mumsnet. Um, my guilty pleasure is reading about how other parents are agonising about the same things that I'm agonising about. You can kind of tap yourself into a discourse of what kind of what kind of parent am I in terms of whether I liberate my children online or whether I try and rein them in. Are they on social media? Are they not? You know, do they screen time limited? Are they not? You know, am I kind of a permissive or a, or a regulating? So there's, we're all able to tap into more and possibly more intimate about more people's kind of inner lives. Um, and that, I think, is potentially game-changing, but not in a deterministic this outcome or that outcome kind of a way. Um, whether that resonates with anybody else yeah uh, absolutely absolutely thank you um uh Kaina. yeah just so i think what speaking to what christine was saying about um sort of looking for um models or like or, or in terms of harmful ways that we encounter social media but then the digital also you know you will there is something for everybody right? You will find your thing. You will find in both good ways and harmful ways. Um, so that that's that's sort of both a risk and opportunity. But then also sort of um, uh, speaking to um, the question that uh, Maria posed to me earlier about stickiness, mm -hmm. right? So there is something I think to be said about uh, these sort of technologies and environments being stickier to to people's um, identities and people's bodies in ways that perhaps wasn't the case before. And so thinking more deeply about what that means and the repercussions also in terms of consent and privacy, um, right? So that, that in a way, just to continue with the architecture um, metaphor, right? So if other people were building our um, our houses and our built environment previously uh, were also to a certain extent engineering our rooms ourselves, whether children or um, adults or because they also respond to um, our traces, our footprints, but more importantly, sort of the accumulated traces, accumulated identity, sort of the associations with other people. So thinking about sort of what that radical connectivity actually means in terms of architecturing our spaces, I think is quite important. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And perhaps we should, um, as a last word, because I'm conscious of time, um, I was going to come to you, um, John Christophe. Um, we, we, we've, I think we've created a sense of the digital as very kind of horizontal and um, in some senses kind of user created or from the perception of those who engage um, and um, you've pointed us towards the kind of the, the pipes that lie underneath, but perhaps not the 
the companies and um, the people who are creating the pipes and making the decisions there. And that might have been, I'm not sure how much that's wrapped up in your idea of infrastructure and how much you want to kind of draw a line between infrastructure and political economy in your in your kind of framing of what, what lies behind. No, on the contrary, let's bring them together. And then if we do that, then we'll see that the type of question that we bring are moving us away from the screen maybe, but saying mm -hmm. that to bring back the architectural metaphor is that um, the architecture of the internet is in a wide, um, to a wide extent being shaped by a few or fewer amount of actors. It's mm -hmm. not that mm -hmm. Google, Amazon or Baidu Tencent or others are taking over the internet. It's more that they are developing their own portion of the internet and they are developing it in a very efficient way. There is still the public internet, it's still branched out, but the mm -hmm. way to look at it is just to see that the most efficient internet is going to private closed network. It's mm -hmm. going to us maybe eventually, but it is separate from the public internet. So that's the little, mm -hmm. little political economy touch I would end with. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I think it actually opens up a whole new um, discussion. I now want to ask Tyner about her new book on Facebook, which is also one of those kind of key players. And uh, I can see many more um, questions that we should um, or could address. But um, our time is against us. And um, I would like now to draw to a close and um, thank you all very warmly for a really thought provoking uh, and kind of um, considered discussion of this truly complicated um, thing that we are living through um, all in a way as a somewhat uh, experimental um, uh, academic as well as personal uh, exercise. So uh, thank you so much. Um, the webinar, as you know, has been recorded and will be um, posted uh, online very soon. Our next webinar is on uh, the opportunities for children in a digital age, whatever those might be. Um, we think a lot about the harms, not quite so sure what could be good. What do we want to build for the future? Um, so uh, watch this space. We will uh, let everyone know when that happens uh, for now. Uh, thank you so much to the audience for uh, asking uh, lots of really interesting questions and to our speakers today. Thank you.